You'll notice that today's message is from Genesis 35, 1 through 15. You may be a little bit puzzled by the title, The Marks of True Revival. The meaning of the title and the purpose of this message will become clear momentarily, but we want to read, first of all, Genesis 35, 1 through 15. We are moving along in our study in Genesis and the life of Jacob. The last we were together and talking about this, we saw where Jacob had uh, a fateful destiny meeting with his brother Esau, who, as far as he knew, still wanted to kill him. But as we study forth through Genesis, we find they actually had quite a good meeting and reunion together. But now Jacob has moved on from that meeting. And here in chapter 35, we have one of several places where we see an example of personal revival or renewal. Let me read first and I'll make some comments as I go along reading from the New King James Version. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household, now notice what he says to them here, to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Before I read any further, you've got to ask yourself, why did he need to say that? So these are not, to put it in modern parlance, Bible-believing, faithful, church-going people. They were part of the household of God. God made his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he had to tell them, put away the foreign gods. Purify yourselves. Verse 3, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way that I've gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was at Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, Because their God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, Rebekah, of course, being Jacob's wife, died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name And so he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And so Jacob set up a pillar in the place, where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it, and Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel, the house of God. There ends the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word. Now, I have remarked from this pulpit before, and I'm going to do it again before this is over, that the term revival is heard quite often in many churches. We sometimes see this in front of churches on their signs announcing revival services this week. 
Revival services are very common in the churches of several denominations, most of them fundamentalist or independent Bible-type churches. And when most people hear or see that a church is holding revival services, well, that generally means to them that they're holding some kind of special meetings with a guest preacher. Now, I don't know how much this is true today. It certainly was true some years ago that some revival preachers, these people who will be invited into a church to do this kind of service, they are real showmen, real pros at playing on people's emotions. They are expert orators who know how to have the audience spellbound with their pulpit presence and theatrics. Unfortunately, the idea of revival or renewal among God's people has become cheapened. But that doesn't change the fact that the phenomenon known as revival, or at least it's come to be called that, is profoundly biblical. In its biblical sense. I don't mean in its modern sense. In Scripture, we find that there are times when God, in His sovereign good pleasure, visits His people in a special and powerful way. And unlike these so-called revivals that we know in our time, the revivals that we find in Scripture are purely the work of God's Holy Spirit. When we study the Bible, we find that revivals are rare occurrences. They don't come around every year, every six months. They come at the most unexpected times, and they produce profound and lasting changes in individual lives and in the life of a community. In the Older Testament, there were ten periods of, rem- of revival uh, among the people of God. In the, uh, the book Quest for Renewal, Walter Kaiser, the great Old Testament scholar, he identifies these ten, and he points out the, one that we, the passage that we read today as one of them. This story about Jacob. These revivals involve the lives of various people among whom God was working at the time. And many of those people are familiar to us, if only by their names. For example, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, among others. And then there are others whom we don't know just because of our lack of familiarity with it. We know less about them. People like Asa and Hezekiah and Josiah. Another thing that we find is that They share these revivals, these God-breathed renewal movements. They share certain characteristics, certain distinctives that set them apart as real and authentic moves of God. So today, I want to share with you nine features of true revival that we find in almost every instance of this in Holy Scripture. And I suggest to you that this means there is no true revival or reformation unless these things are present. And I think it's good to remember that we can maybe in some sense use these terms interchangeably, although in the modern mind they mean different things. Revival, renewal, reformation. Here's the first of these nine things. There is a period of deep spiritual decline and despair. Revivals and reformations are sent by God because his people have fallen away. They've turned their backs on being faithful to him. That's why I stopped in the reading and said, Why did he have to say this? Why did Jacob have to say this to his household? Put away these idols. There's a falling away. There's a time of spiritual decline. In the Older Testament, among the families of men like Noah and Abraham and Jacob, we find that while those people on many occasions demonstrated great piety and holiness, there were other times when those men fell away from God. And there are indicators of spiritual decline among Christians that are just as serious 
as any in the book of, of Genesis. For example, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is what he says. He's now, he says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And he goes on to list all the things going on in that particular church, factions, gossiping, people choosing up sides over various things. So in other words, in a broad manner of speaking, there was violence and immorality, but on a different level from some of the things that were going on in the Old Testament counterparts. Let me put it this way. How often do we murder people with our mouths and our harsh words? How often do we violate others with unkindness and backstabbing? See, what Paul was saying, and what we take away from this in the modern context, is when a church starts down the road of bickering and infighting and choosing up sides and forming factions, well, that's a sure thing that sign that things are headed downhill. That's why Paul pled with those people to love and respect each other in the name of Christ. So this is the first sign that real reformation is needed, a time of despair and spiritual decline. Secondly, revivals and renewals often begin in the heart of a person close to the Lord, a person not without fault or failure, but a person nevertheless deeply committed to God. And in each of these Ten instances of reformation and renewal in the Older Testament. And we're, again, we're only focusing on this one. It was the truth of God, the word of God, the law word of God, which those men brought to the people. Now, just to refer to another example of this, in the books of Kings and Chronicles, and I'll mention specifically 2 Chronicles, chapters 30 to 34, you have several other of these ten instances of Older Testament reformation and revival involving, among others, Josiah, for example, and Hezekiah. And this is exactly what was taking place. There was a recommitment, a rediscovery of God's divine law. That was the motivating force in the revival. Not the charisma of the speaker or the leader. Not his good looks. Not his $500 silk suit. Not a lot of hot air blowing from the pulpit with wild gesticulations and highly charged screaming and antics. In other words, none of the theatrics that are often associated or that have been associated with the revival, so-called revival services in modern times. One of the great revivals that took place in our country took place back in the 1730s. Now, it was called the Great Awakening, and it was not without criticism and uh, controversy. And some of it, I think, might have been justified. But it occurred under the ministry primarily of the great Calvinistic preacher Jonathan Edwards. One of the sermons that he preached during that time is still considered today a classic of American speech and writing. It was titled, some of you have heard of it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now with a title like that, well you'd think that this must have been some kind of hellfire and brimstone barn burner sermon. Now, from the eyewitness accounts, there were hundreds of people who heard Edwards preach that sermon. Many of them were marvelously saved by the grace of God. They responded 
by repenting of the sins that they'd long since to, tried to hide from the Lord. And other eyewitness reports said that hundreds of people were in tears and moaning and agonizing in the most pitiful ways because of their conviction of sin. But the astounding thing was, and this is what I, the reason I bring this up, in contrast to the fomented, ginned-up revivals of today, Jonathan Edwards barely raised his voice during the whole sermon. He read it word for word in a monotone, only pausing occasionally to look up from his notes. Something probably like this. But the astounding thing was, Jonathan Edwards barely raised his voice during the whole sermon. He read it word for word. So something like that. See, it was the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit alone that brought reformation and renewal to New England in those days. Nothing more, nothing less. Then thirdly, there is a new and powerful proclamation of the law word of God. Every true reformation and renewal among God's people have as their beginning a turning back to a restoring of the central importance of God's law over the words and wishes of men. See, one of the things that leads to spiritual decline to begin with is a turning away from the law word of God as the only standard for what is right and wrong, what is true or false. Time and again, the people in the older covenant age would turn from God to follow other gods, to follow their own pursuits. They put their own wishes and desires ahead of God. And very often, that led to desolation and misery. So one of the marks of true revival and reformation is a return to a love for God's law and his ways over man's ways. As I'm going through this, I want you to think about if you have any familiarity at all with so-called revivals in our time. Maybe you have to think back a ways or people you've known. See how much of what I'm telling you actually corresponds to what takes place in some of these things. Number four, a return to genuine worship of the Lord. Truly genuine worship of the Lord characterized all the Reformation and Revival renewal movements in the Older Testament. See, when people are restored and renewed in their spiritual vitality, they want to worship God Almighty. Now, we know that style of worship is a very important thing. Uh, Especially in our time, the worship wars are the main battlefields in churches. You know, are we going to have traditional worship? liturgical worship, we're going to have blended worship, contemporary worship, that, all that sort of thing. And I'm not saying those issues are not important, important, important because God himself has given us the standard by which we are to worship him. But the point I want to make is, as it relates to this subject, is that equally important are the hearts of the people and their attitude toward each other and toward the Lord they claim to serve. Now, personally, I don't care for the phrase regulative principle of worship. I understand what it wants to say and what it's trying to do, and I think there's some good parts to it. But for the sake of discussion, let's say that we all agree that's a good thing. We ought to follow the so-called regulative principle of worship. The point I'm trying to make here is that you can have a church that follows the regulative principle to the dot and, and tittle, to the jot and tittle. And if the people's hearts are cold and hate each other, hate God, whatever it may be, That's not genuine worship. Number five, all true revivals involve the destruction of the idols that the people had preferred to the true and only God. See, again, too often in the older covenant, people gave in to the temptations to worship idols. 
That's what was going on in chapter 35, verse 2, as we heard. Giving into something other than Yahweh. Placing something other than Yahweh, the true God, in the place of honor and devotion in life. And what those people found is that God will not share his glory with another. No matter who or what that other is or are. True revival begins when the worshiping of idols, whatever they may be, ends. Number six, every true reformation or renewal is accompanied by a deep sense of sin and a passionate desire to be separated from every appearance of evil and wickedness. You know, uh, people often feel sorry for themselves when they get caught in a sin. They may cry and shed big tears over how rotten and messed up their lives have become because of their rebellion against God. But none of that is what true repentance is all about. Because, my friends, only the Holy Spirit of God can produce the real anxiety and agonizing conviction that we are sinners before a righteous and holy God. Anything less than that is not true renewal or reformation. It is mere psychological manipulation and maneuvering and cajoling people. And as I've said... And I say it again, in our time, we have yet to see true reformation in this particular way. When we do see it, we will know it. Because when it comes, all of the failures of the past, even those that have long since been forgotten, all of it suddenly becomes so painfully present that no amount of comfort or trying to reason it away will work. There's a deep and heavy personal sense of guilt and heartbreak. Feeling sorry for oneself and being upset because we've messed up our lives That's not evidence that true revival and reformation has come. Real reformation and renewal comes when there is real repentance from sin, a real turning away from the old life because of the new life of Christ that has come to live in and through us. Number seven. In the revivals that we see in the Older Testament, there were always, or there was always, a return to the making of blood sacrifices. Now, in a sense, that's a way of saying what I said a moment ago about genuine, authentic worship. But the point is, these people, when they had this true conviction of what God needed from them and what they should be doing, they sought to remedy their sins, to show God how truly sorry they were, and so they used the means that he had ordained for them in that time period of redemptive history. And every sacrifice that was made by a repentant sinner in the older covenant, that pointed forward to that once and for all sacrifice of the true Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus himself, in the new covenant. In most all of these cases of renewal in the Bible, the people had turned away from offering true blood sacrifices that Yahweh had ordained to the only true God who could forgive their sins. Most of the time, they were following other avenues for deliverance. They were following other gods, other religions. You and I certainly live in such a time. Today, men and women are willing to follow the most outlandish New Age teachings and nonsense. They're willing to pay large sums of money for all kinds of self-help programs and feel-good seminars and self-esteem rallies. And none of it can solve the problems of sin and guilt. Only by trusting in the shed blood of Christ Jesus on the cross can we deal with that. Number eight, we're coming down to the wire here. Number eight, the eighth feature in the Old Testament renewals and reformations was an experience of great joy and exuberance in life. 
Look, as much as the conviction of sin and agony and misery of sin is, this is equally important. The experience of great joy and exuberance in life. In the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, we are witness there to a great renewal and reformation. And many of the people in that time, in the days of those prophets, they were so sorry for their sins, they didn't want to stop grieving over them. And Nehemiah and Ezra encouraged them to stop their mourning and sadness because with the conviction of sin and the seeking of forgiveness, there ought to come joy and gladness. So true revival and reformation in the Scripture are not simply or only matters of heavy feelings of guilt and sorrow for sin. That's only part of it. The joy and the happiness that God gives us when we truly repent and forgiven are just as important. But sadly... There remain people who don't want the joy and the gladness that only a cleansed and renewed heart can give. No, they they actually prefer to feel sad and guilty all the time. Like somehow the worse they feel about themselves, the more God's going to like it. That's not biblical, friends. And that leads me then to the final point, number nine. When we study the Old Testament revivals, we see that each was followed by a time of great prosperity and productivity among God's people. Now, I'm not talking here about the so-called health and wealth, prosperity gospel, the, the success and happiness teaching that is prevalent in so many so-called evangelical churches today. No, what we see in the Bible is that God blesses his people when they obey him, and very often that takes the form of material blessing and prosperity. And you see, this all goes back to the covenant. It's the way God deals with us. You can see this, for example, in the writings of the prophet Haggai. That prophet was sent by God to remind the people that when their spiritual lives were in decline, so too were their material lives. So there's a, you know, it's double-sided. True reformation and revival brings material prosperity and blessing, and the decline that precedes it leads to material decline. Listen to these words in Haggai 1, 5-6. Now therefore, says Yahweh, Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, and you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages put into a bag with holes. Does that sound familiar to any of you in our time? In the book of the prophet Joel, he calls the people to repentance, and in return, the Lord promised that there would be a future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But he also promised that they would immediately see the material blessing because of their faithfulness. Joel chapter 2, Yahweh will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for Yahweh has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their strength. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, He goes on, you shall eat plenty and be satisfied. He goes on in the next several verses describing these material blessings. Real revival and reformation is not just a matter, in other words, of personal salvation and deliverance from sin. It involves the whole person. It involves the world around us. It involves a renewal and a reformation in our spiritual lives, in our emotional lives, a renewal in our material lives, In other words, it involves a renewal in every area of life. God's word, as Dr. Rush Dooney used to say, is 
a total word. God's word is a complete word. It encompasses all aspects of life. Where would anybody get such an idea as that? Uh, well, from reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's where you get that idea. Now, I told you at the beginning of this message, true revival is purely the work of God. Any And every time men try to gin this up and, and bring about revival through methods and techniques, it inevitably falls short in at least one, if not all, of these nine areas that the Bible has shown us. But even though revival is solely and completely God's doing, the Bible does show us that we have a part to play in this as well. Because it is we who must repent. And we must ask him to send this great reformation among us. Today, we do not know revival among God's people as we have those who have developed and practiced a means of church entertainment that they call revivalism. That's what people see nowadays, which, which they mistake and misname revival. It's revivalism. And that is a giant step away from the true biblical reformations of Bible times. That was related, this revivalism, to the work of heretics like Charles Finney and mass evangelists like D.L. Moody, who sought to stir up congregations and mass gatherings of people through various theatrics and high-powered oratory. None of that is true Bible reformation or revival. Many years ago, and I'm going to leave you with this story. A man approached a well-known British evangelist. And he asked him, how can I have true revival? How can we know true revival? Well, that famous evangelist looked at him and said, sir, do you have a place where you can go privately and pray? And the man said, bless God, yes, I do. And this is what the evangelist told him. He said, here's what I need you to do then. You go to that place and you take with you a big piece of chalk. And you draw a complete circle all around where you're standing. And then you pray that God will send reformation and revival on everything inside that circle. And you stay there until he answers that prayer. And then you will know true revival and renewal. Let us pray.